Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Tuesday, July 7th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, I think this week we're going to mix it up. We're going to talk about some topics, maybe discuss a couple of issues, get facts and opinions all woven in. Are nice things going to be involved? Things will be involved, can guarantee. Um, we're going to just try to make sure that whatever we discuss, whatever we talk about, that we stay within good faith. And now hopefully you guys have even a stronger understanding of what that means. And uh, do our best to keep everyone involved, adequately informed. Yeah. And we acknowledge that we are only human. We don't know everything. We aren't experts. We, uh, yeah, neither of us are quite experts on what we like to talk about. But, you know, we know some things, but we know we don't know all things. We don't come from the ivory tower. And we know that our perspectives aren't the only ones that matter or are valid. So, with all that in mind, hey, Evan. Yeah, Joe. What do you want to talk about? Well, Joe, this week, I want to take us on a journey. And that journey begins by understanding a little bit about U.S. patent law. So, at its most basic state, patent law is a set of intellectual property laws whereby the government grants the inventor of a new innovation, the sole right to profit from those inventions for a period of time. Patent law is extremely important because without strong intellectual property laws, there's no incentive for people to spend their time and money creating things if someone else can just take their designs and profit off of it. And for the most part, this works very well, but there are times where patent law can be a bit restrictive in ways that actually create negative incentives. So that's why there are times where the government can break patent law legally, exceptions to the patenting process, essentially. It's part of the U.S. Code, Title 18, Section 1498, which states that the United States federal government can violate patents as long as they provide reasonable and entire compensation. And the specific meaning of that has been duked out in the courts, and there is more or less a common standard for reasonable and entire compensation. But what this means is that since the government is the institution which grants patents, if they decide that it is in public interest to make exceptions to granted patents, they can do so as part of the foundation of intellectual property law. And this was further clarified in the 1980 Patent and Trademark Law Amendments Act, also called the Bayh-Dole Act, which authorizes the United States federal government to, quote, march in if there is a patent or something that's very important and is not made available to the public on reasonable terms. And this has happened several times. There are a number of high-profile examples of this. One such instance came in the 1980s when Boeing was working on metal alloys that would be lighter, which would save on fuel costs for their airliners, 
And NASA, through the contractor Lockheed Martin, wanted to utilize this technology in order to save fuel costs for space expeditions. During Desert Storm, the Army made its own night vision goggles, even though they were patent protected for a company called Gargoyles Incorporated. Awesome name, I know. And by invoking Section 1498, the government could just get away with paying some small amount to the company and continue to manufacture their own night vision goggles. We did it again for military purposes in 2014, where the U.S. federal government violated the patent for lead-free bullets as held by Liberty Ammunition. Again, Section 1498 protected the government from patent infringement. <laughs> Wait a minute. You could have a patent on bullets not made out of lead? Yes, they're called green bullets, actually, and it's done in an attempt to be environmentally conscious, and it was something that the government wanted to proceed forward with, and so they just co-opted the existing technology under Section 1498. I mean, I just like the idea of patenting, patenting making something not out of the most common material used to make it. Like, so like, like an impossible whopper. Yeah, like I, I, yeah, I'll. Imp- <laughs> I want to patent every version of making a burger that isn't out of beef. <laughs> All right, do it. <laughs> you get to. You can. Negative patents. Let's do it. <laughs> it's not I'm how it works at all, but patent patent a lead hamburger and then see what that happens. Yeah, so I'm sure someday that will come to shine. <laughs> the the next most relevant time where Section 1498 has been invoked came in 2015 when the pharma company Gilead was charging hundreds of thousands of dollars for an extremely effective hepatitis C treatment and the government wanted to step in to try to create their own generic version of it to violate Gilead's patent. Which leads me to, I guess, the the bigger point of all of this is that we know that the government has the right to break patents when it's in the public interest to do so. So I am calling on the government to again invoke section section 1498 to lower the cost of insulin. The government could either attempt to create their own version of the generic drug or like they did with the Boeing Lockheed Martin example, license some other company to make a cheaper generic. And I think that there is a strong case for the government intervening to lower the cost of insulin. Right now, three companies, Eli Lilly, which is right here in Indianapolis, Novo Nordisk, and Sanofi Aventis control 90% of the U.S. insulin market. And it's because they are the ones with the bulk of the patents on the different versions of insulin that are commercially available. The average monthly cost of insulin for diabetics is $450. And that obviously sounds like a lot, but I do want to put it in context because numbers mean very little without context. So one reason to justify this could be that there's a high production cost, but that's not true. It costs between four and six dollars a vial to produce insulin. So the markup on it is huge. 
We could also say that maybe the cost of insulin has just always been high, but that's also not true. As recently as 2012, the cost was about half that. So we've seen a huge explosion in the cost of insulin without seeing any difference in the product. Another reason why you might want to justify high costs for drugs is if the companies are spending a lot of money developing them and making them better. But that's not happening for insulin either. Insulin has been essentially the same as it was in terms of effectiveness since the 1950s. We know how to make insulin effectively. And so there's any R&D that goes into modern insulin is just changing it enough to retain exclusive patents. It's not actually providing a better, safer, more effective product for consumers. And I think it's relevant here to talk about how insulin was developed. In 1921, Canadian scientists Frederick Banting and Charles Best were able to discover how to create insulin. And they understood how huge this development could be. And so they sold their patents to the University of Toronto for a dollar each. They did all the work developing it and they gave it away because they wanted it to be in the best interests of the world at large. And at this point, the University of Toronto fucked up because they licensed that initial insulin patent to Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, which means that they could keep experimenting with it and making changes to the insulin formula to patent the new versions of the drug, and they get to keep the exclusivity to the drugs that they create. Like I said, this doesn't make them better. There's no requirement that to patent a new version of a drug, you have to make it better. There's no standard. It just has to be appreciably different. So every year, Lilly and Nordisk just tinker with the formula to make it distinct enough to extend their patent without, again, making it better. It took us about 30 years to really figure out the best way to make insulin, but we have been cruising for about 70 years. All of this is to say, insulin price is way too high. It doesn't reflect adequate R&D development. It doesn't reflect the cost to make the drug. All it is is extortion of people who need insulin or they will die. And that, unfortunately, is happening. In Minnesota, there's a bill right now that is being contested called the Alex Smith Insulin Affordability Act. It was named after a man named Alex Smith who died after rationing, rationing his insulin because he was unable to afford the full dosage every month. I think that it is beyond time for someone to step in and use a tool that is legally at our disposal to stop gouging people who need a life-saving treatment. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've talked in this show about kind of the medical world and kind of like I'm kind of coming to the idea that maybe it's not so much that a some free market elements are actually bad. Well, not the 
wholesale free market elements in the medical market aren't great, but the way it's set up now isn't good. Like if there was a free market element where insulin, you know, the patent for it was just kind of opened up and there were a whole bunch of people producing insulin and driving the cost down, that'd be great. But we're currently in a situation where these companies have a captured market of people who need to purchase their product and they are essentially milking it for what it's worth, which makes business sense, but does not make good moral sense. Um, so I'm pretty sure what these insulin companies are doing is they are kind of trying to max out how much that they can charge for these products without encouraging a massive public outcry or too many people dying from not being able to afford insulin, which is evil, but nonetheless, probably the calculation they're making. And it's like, have you ever seen, have you ever seen fight club? Yeah, I've seen fight club. Yeah. So remember, uh, the, the guy, his job is, uh, he's like an actuary or, or an adjuster and he says you know we look at the price of doing a recall when we know something's defective and then we try to calculate how many failures it'll cause times the average settlement payout and if the recall costs more than the payouts we don't do the recall it's kind of that same cruel calculus where they will sacrifice lives if they can maximize profits yeah, and I mean, cars are a little bit, I mean, I know you weren't trying to do a direct apples to apples comparison, but I mean, like, so when you have a car, that's kind of like a new frontier in some ways, like, you know, cars are always improving, <clears throat> Ooh. Uh, cars are always improving, and basically the way that they're improving is that greater and greater uh, safety features are able to be introduced into cars for lower and lower prices that make them eligible for people to actually be able to buy. Um, and that's somewhere where we're on a frontier. Whereas insulin, insulin is something that some people just need, especially type one diabetics. Um, they absolutely need that to survive. And there's no re there's no way for them to survive without insulin like insulin is the end game you know i doubt that they're gonna come out someday with insulin 2 that you know is like so much better and makes you know type 1 diabetes bad but for the foreseeable future they just need insulin and the another way i've started to try and look at like kind of the healthcare space is is this the way we want this market to run for forever? <laughs> like, do we want to be charging people ridiculously high prices for insulin for forever? Like maybe, you know, maybe some weird temporary blip happens and, you know, all the prices go up, but that's not what's happening. You know, do we believe, you know, if we think about it logically, should this product that many people need to survive costs so damn much and the answer is no so i don't know if you had this as part of your segment but one way that um 
you know, you could the U.S. could just buy the patent. But one way that's been proposed to work, at least in the medical field with medicines, is instead of awarding patents to companies which seem to um, dissuade uh, competition when um, it seems to be a field where competition is needed from the outset to make it even you know somewhat worthwhile because, again, of the captured market problem. So what if the United States offered giant uh, ro- awards or rewards for uh, coming up with a certain drug? So like, let's say the government puts a price on a cure for cancer, whoever, whichever company or collective comes up with a cure for cancer gets something like, I don't know, make it massive, make it $10 trillion or some shit like that. But then they have the cure for cancer and they can give that to as many people as they want at zero cost, essentially just, you know, whatever cost of manufacturing. There is no company that holds the you know, has to try and recoup cost and, you know, make high prices and fund other things and all that stuff. No, if it's just a reward, you get it done. And then, you know, the reward is awarded. And then, you know, society gets whatever treatment or medicine or whatever that results of it. I mean, I would be fine with that. I, the standard for me has to be that our democracy has to be stronger than our markets. So if we decide to get there by just saying, develop a cure for cancer, and then we will use public dollars to pay you for it, and then you can distribute it out evenly, that's fine. What I don't want is when there is something, a a life-saving miracle drug cure that could help a huge amount of American citizens. I don't want our government sitting on the sidelines saying, well, guess we're just going to see how much money they can wring out of you. And I would pretty much be open to all solutions that fit within that framework. Yeah. Like uh, government, one of their main functions that we don't think about is creating the playing field or at least in a market economy, creating the market, creating Mm -hmm. the rules of the market, how a market is going to run. And then everyone has to play by those rules. And right now the rules for how the pharmaceutical industry market runs or, you know, plays or is competitive or makes money isn't a very equitable or socially optimal market design. Like, you yeah. know, there are, there, are, there are plenty of other things with that, too. It's like uh, uh, EpiPens, you know, those are very mm-hmm. important to people. And, you know, what's crazy about EpiPens is that it's not even the medicine that is what's patented. It's the delivery vehicle. Yeah, the injection the system. Yeah, it's the pen that's patented. And um, it's the only one that has met the FDA's muster, um, if you will. Um, you know, I've talked about the some disdains of the FDA approving process before. But um, 
So that's another thing where the EpiPen is the only one that's on the market now because no other ones have been approved. So they have a they have a monopoly on the quick delivery of norepirin. No, that's that's the that's the heroin drug. Um, no, naloxone is the heroin drug. Norepinephrine is, I believe, the EpiPen drug. Regardless, whichever one it is, they have a market on the quick delivery of that drug to of you know to save people's lives, and that is a really captured market. Like you know, if you need to buy EpiPens, you need to buy EpiPens, and there is nowhere else to go for that, and no other treatment that's suitable. So that's the, that's the biggest issue with. Uh, capitalism and the market, at least as we have it set up now, is that everyone has a real captured market. And since we kind of do a pay per play uh, system there, there's, uh, you know, you either charge more, or you get more people to use it. And that's not always socially optimal. Yeah. So I just want to make a couple of points about markets, because I think that uh, I like that this has gone in this direction. My first point is going to be that markets are extraordinary at solving certain problems, but they are not so good at solving a lot of other problems. To the extent that a market can solve a problem, that's fine. Let it do what it's got to do. But when a market is not delivering socially optimal results, the government needs to step in. The next point that I want to make goes back to Joe's idea about setting the rules of markets, because I don't think that's something that gets enough attention. There's no free market in nature. A government has to set certain standard rules, such as intellectual property law. That's a, a foundational cornerstone of how certain markets are able to operate, and it is set through a political process. So there's no just inherent market without the government setting these parameters. So therefore, it is incumbent upon governments to set those parameters in a responsible and socially equitable way. And as voters and participants in democracy, we should have a voice in how those rules are established. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nobody would, you know, especially with the insulin example, I don't think anybody would ever say that insulin should cost as much as it does. But then again, um, you know, there's a kind of innate small C conservatism that people like to believe that the world is because of factors that are just innate when it's really human choice and choices that have been made that make it the way it is. Absolutely. And, you know, even in extreme examples, you know, there, there are people who die because they ration insulin and that's tragic. And I don't want to undersell that at all, but even for people who can afford to pay high prices for insulin, why should they have to, why should someone incur a $450 monthly penalty for the way that their pancreas operates. It, it it makes sense only in a purely capitalist mindset 
this is where by my worldview and what I believe about how the world should work, that a democracy needs to intervene on behalf of a vulnerable group of its citizenry. Yeah. I mean, hell, I mean, the government has uh, done it before. Like, um, I'm pretty sure from my understanding, the U.S. government um, pays for all dialysis. Um, Like they just, you know, when that came out, like they bought up the either the patent or something like that and basically um, made themselves the sole people who do it. Now, is it done always in the best way? No, but or, you know, the most yeah that helps the most people. No, but um, it can be done. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what if you had to be beholden to your insurance company and. Um, you know, they, you know, dialysis costs, you know, like, you know, some stupid amount of money per month instead of, you know, just having it available to you if your kidneys aren't functioning, functioning correctly. Like, Mm -hmm. that'd be ridiculous. We'd be talking about that (laughs) as well. Um, so people have, people are always going to have medical problems and it makes sense that as a society that they should not be overly burdensome in someone's life. Yeah, that is what I believe. And I think that we have at least one strong proven tool to make this happen. Section 1498. Yeah, get that trending. Hashtag section 1498. Let me see it adequately informed listeners. (laughs) We'll be checking our mentions. Or the hash, I don't know. However, that works. Look, don't if it, if it starts dial. trending, if it starts trending, we'll see it. So make it yeah, trend. Yeah, yeah, make it trend so it comes up on my timeline. <laughs> All right, Joe. What do you want to talk about? Well, I want to talk about, in some ways, emotions, but kind of like how we deal with them in a society. So. There are two things that have happened to me recently. I'll start with the lighter one. So recently I watched a video. I know. Big, big shock. I watched a video online. And it was by uh, this creator. His uh, name's John Green. He is the writer of uh, books such as Paper Towns, Fallen Our Stars, you know, the young adult writer. But he also has a YouTube channel where he makes YouTube videos with his brother, Hank. They've been doing it for like well over a decade now. They're like YouTube grandpas. And, you know, they just make a, you know, each one of them makes a nice little video each week just discussing something. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, John Green made this video where he talked about fireflies, you know, the bug and how beautiful they are. And but how there was a part of his life where when he was a little bit younger he thought it was you know uh cheesy to you know think that you know fireflies out on the night are beautiful because you know it's like they're so beautiful it's such a thing you know common thing that it almost seems cliche to talk about how fireflies are at night are beautiful and you know this came from a spot of want not wanting to seem childish or naive or even innocent 
um, in a, you know, adolescence or whatever, or till whatever age he decided not to be like that. And that's something I've really resonated with an idea because, you know, there were times in my adolescence where, you know, I wanted to seem like I had grown up. And so I decided to take, you know, certain positions or, or think of things as laughable or, you know, not as serious as other people not wanting to seem innocent or naive or childish. And this became especially relevant last week when I got a call from my mom when I got off work that um, they were going to have to put the family dog down. Uh, his name was Ben. And, um, you know, I had this was the first dog our family ever had. And I mean, I had had some pets, but I mean, they were fish. So, I mean, it was fish, but, and, um, never had a dog before. So never had a dog die before on me. So I had, you know, throughout my life, I had never quite understood the turmoil that some people go through when, their dog died. Um, it seemed like a whole lot of hoopla. And I was like, yeah, I mean, dogs are good, but I mean, it's still just a dog in some way in my mind. And somehow I had kind of even thought like that with our dog. You know, I was like, you know, someday he's going to die and it's going to suck, but you know, Ben's only going to live however long. And you know, it's great to have him while we did, but when I got that call and finally got the, you know, realization that Ben was, you know, that it was his last day, that hit so much harder than I ever thought it would. So much more than, you know, I'll just say so much more than I ever thought it would. And I, you know, it caused a lot of grief. It caused a lot of pain and I'm, you know, I'm still working through it, but I mean, I'm so much, I'm better now. You know, I was like bawling my eyes out and, you know, it's funny because almost everybody in my family has come to the same realization. And I was like, wow, you know, we, you know, we have known plenty of people whose dogs have died and been like, okay, I mean, yeah, that sucks. But I mean, dogs die. And I mean, yeah, you get on with it, but you know, we, we've come to terms with that, man, this is, uh, this is so much harder than we ever thought it would be. So, you know, I don't even know if there's some grand lesson here, but just because some sort of feeling or emotion or, you know, some, something that people have to work through is very common in life and even almost cliche, um, you know, like even a joke, it's like, oh, you look down, what, your dog died? Like, those are still very powerful emotions, even if they're very common emotions. And you're not necessarily going to rise above them or be more mature because you recognize them or don't feel them or don't want to feel them. So just maybe just go ahead and feel them and <laughs> be an empathetic person. 
So that's about all I have to say on that. Well, first of all, I've expressed this to you privately, but I'll say it again now. I'm very sorry for your loss. I I do understand what it's like to lose a beloved pet, and it it really does kind of gut you. And then in regards to your broader points about this dissonance we feel when we understand that something is almost a cliche versus how real the emotion feels, I think it's very easy to be cynical. I think in a lot of circles, cynicism is rewarded and celebrated. And it's because we know uh, we have a certain aversion to this maudlin sentimentality, especially when it's mediated. So I'm thinking of that whole genre of movies that just apparently wants you to fall in love with this adorable dog and then kill the dog off. And when we see that on screen, we know that that is trite. We know that that's concocted to generate an emotional response and we reject that. But when it happens to you, when it's off of the screen, it doesn't feel convoluted. It just hurts. And I think that we can balance that cynicism with a huge amount of empathy and... Thankfully, I think, you know, a lot of people that I know personally would understand and would get it. But if there is anybody who who is maybe where Joe found himself pre all this, it's it's good to hear that experience, that perspective that he's gained. Because it's bad enough to feel a hurt and it's even worse if that hurt has to be mixed with resentment for feeling the hurt in the first place. Yeah. So I agree. Let yourself feel it. Yeah. You know, I like, I kind of like how you brought it back to kind of media because it, 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 this has definitely happened in my life, but just, you know, tropes and media, you know, end up, being a lens through which I see real life as well, you know, um, you know, consuming much media from an early age, you know, you learn social cues from that as well as real life. And so maybe part of it comes from, you know, maybe seeing something on a TV show where someone dog dies and you see it as just a very obvious ploy to try and get some emotion out of you. You could look at it at a cynical view and be like, Oh, they're just doing that. But then, you know, you somewhat take that cynical view when, you know, that's, that comes about from the lens of viewing media to real life. And it, causes a dissonance so yeah. yeah and i do think that experience makes a big difference so 
two movies that I watched very quickly after becoming a dog owner were the movies Alpha and Bolt. And both of those sort of have that emotional climax where the dog is put in peril. And I will not lie, both of those movies deeply affected me. And, you know, is it a ploy or are they just tapping into that genuine vein of emotion? It probably comes a lot down to execution. But what matters more, in my eyes, is when it is flesh and blood people going through this experience that you understand that and appreciate their emotions as very real. Yeah. Like there have definitely been times where I've been viewing a piece of media and I'm like, Oh, and of course that person in their life dies. Cause you got to make it amp it up a bit. Oh yeah. But, yeah. But then never in my own life would I be like, Oh, and of course their mom died. This just had to happen. Um, yeah. It, yeah. So. So, yeah. Uh, I miss Ben. But, hey, you know, death is part of life. It is. Yeah. It is. It It is life. <laughs> I mean, in, in some ways. It's the so. terminus of life for each yeah. and every one of us. Yeah. So ben was, let's do ben it Ben was a good boy. Ben was a good boy. <laughs> yeah. 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 And that was another weird thing was learning how much our dog meant to other people, which was interesting. Like we just kind of saw him as, you know, he was just kind of there. And then as like other people were like, oh, man, it's sad that he died. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't know my dog that I didn't even pay as much attention to (laughs) affected you in that way, too, or something like that. So just interesting yeah people like animals people especially dogs and then for some people cats <laughs> all right so we got a main segment don't we evan we do as per usual. so uh what are we going to talk about today Today we have sort of a wide umbrella that I am going to try to gather under the heading of relics of our racist history. So we want to talk sort of about how to handle TV shows which feature characters in blackface, how we deal with monuments of confederate generals and slaveholders and maybe even if joel permit me start to talk about uh, a little bit of baseball and football as certain teams are considering changing their names i think it's all sort of of a piece if you will so that's where we are going today and i believe we have in the past touched on these subjects before um but not fully. I believe I think the closest we ever had a discussion on this was when Disney Plus came out and a discussion of whether like, uh, you know, Song of the South should be on there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have had portions of this conversation before, but it has become relevant again. And we have new ideas and new tactics 
that we can discuss and analyze. So we're going to go ahead and get into that. And I'm going to go ahead and lead us off by talking about the history of blackface. And I think that blackface has become a term that has a very big umbrella in and of itself. So I want to kind of differentiate what I see as three different flavors of blackface that you might run into in media texts. And the first one is the very specific type of blackface as a performative style that gave the image its origin. So the performative style of blackface is when a non-black actor has their entire face or the majority of their face darkened with black face paint. And more elements of this performative style include either exaggerated red paint around the lips and mouth or just leaving that area white to create a contrast. Typically, the costume includes white gloves and these were popular during minstrel shows. And minstrel shows were a very specific type of cultural performance where white actors dressed up in blackface to portray black characters, and the characters invariably always fell into very preordained, stereotypical types of performances. And this included the idea that these black characters were happy to be oppressed, that they were fine just being subjugated. And of course, when a white person is telling that story, that doesn't raise as many alarms for the performers. <laughs> also, the ideas, the idea was that the black, the white performers played the black characters as stupid and lazy. So even if they were to achieve equality, they just wouldn't know what to do with it. And obviously, these do not represent with any fraction of authenticity the legitimate black experience. But white audiences during the time of vaudeville and even extending decades after it should have become clear, accepted these inauthentic portrayals as gospel truth. And this really helped shape the way a lot of white people thought about black people, thus reinforcing white supremacy. And for a visual guide Everyone who's interested and doesn't quite know what I'm talking about, I'm pretty sure that people understand this, but if you look at the movie The Jazz Singer, it was the first movie to gain wide distribution in the United States to feature synchronous sound recording. It's often called the first sound film for that reason. The The character Al Jolson, well, the, I don't remember the character's name, but the actor's name is Al Jolson. He performs musical numbers in blackface during the film, the very classic vaudevillian minstrel show type blackface. So that is the genesis for the discussion of blackface. But there's a couple of other slightly different variations that I want to talk about. The first being the impersonation type of blackface. So this doesn't necessarily need to adhere to the specific performative tropes of the minstrel show blackface, but it does still involve a white or non-black actor playing a specific or fictionalized black character. So it typically involves black face paint, black skin paint, and 
acting as someone of a different race. So a couple of examples of this include the landmark film Birth of a Nation, in which white actors played black characters and they were made out to be entirely villainous. Though it didn't exactly fit the strict definition of black blackface performance, it still can be considered blackface. And it was horrible because, again, it was white actors pretending that the black characters were inferior, rapists, morally degenerate. And again, it's something that was accepted by audiences. But this type of blackface has proven more and more difficult to eliminate from the culture. And more recently, it came up when discussing the career of Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel now is perceived as a wholesome, family-friendly, late-night entertainer. But during the early 2000s, on his sketch show, The Man Show, he did a sketch where he portrayed the basketball player Carl Malone. And this actually came to light a couple years ago and just resurfaced even after Jimmy Kimmel apologized. I think he's done at least two apology tours for this right now. But I had always kind of ignored it. I didn't really... You know, it's one of those things that you don't need to concern yourself with. But because we were specifically talking about it, I went and I watched the clip on YouTube. And holy shit, Joe, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's horrible. It is really like the most racist shit imaginable. He is obviously entirely, all of his skin is covered in black body paint. And he speaks in broken English and plays into those same tropes of making Carl Malone seem dumb and inferior, talking about how he is is nervous about aliens coming to give him an anal probe. It's just entirely juvenile. But at the end of the day, it's doing the same thing. It's taking a white person and using performance to propagate the idea that this black man is dumb and inferior and it doesn't you know there was no hint of irony there was no idea that the black community or carl malone specifically was in on this joke it was just cruel and if you if you got the stomach for it i would recommend watching it because it's really eye-opening but it is who it was it was worse than i thought it was going to be So that's the second type of blackface, the impersonation. The final type is resemblance. So there are various other examples with varying degrees of offensiveness where a performer or some other mediated image resembles the general blackface aesthetic without specifically mocking a person or group of people. Something that I think about for this is in the world of Pokemon, the original character design for the Pokemon Jinx was changed because the character had the extremely dark face and the bright white hands with the big red lips. So that doesn't really fit, I don't think, in how we talk about blackface in those first two examples, but it's still something that's going to come up, especially when we get into specific discussions of items that are contested right now.
you want to jump in here or um i mean that all seems about right um uh, two small little things one uh talking about minstrel performers that um Mickey Mouse was actually modeled after early minstrel performers. So ah. there's that. Um, and two, and then there's the fourth category of blackface, which is Robert Downey's Jr.'s performance in Tropic Thunder, like which always has to seem to come up in blackface conversations. But um, that's always that's always a fun gray area that people explore. But yeah, I guess that is kind of an interesting one-off case study because he's playing a character who is playing a character in blackface. He's play- yeah, he's playing a white character who's doing blackface. And the movie acknowledges that that's fucked up. Yeah. But then does that make it okay for Robert Downey Jr. to have done the blackface with that layer of self-awareness baked in? Yeah. I don't know if I really want to touch that right now, but it is it's a valid yeah, thing that's, to bring yeah, up. That's, not, that's not the conversation we're having, <laughs> yeah. and that is that would very much be a tangent. Yes. But anyway. <laughs> so blackface, like I said, has a history of being a very specific tool that white people use and non-black people, because as we're gonna find out, it's not only whites who can participate in blackface but non-white people using to perpetuate anti-blackness. And we're finding that a lot of more or less beloved comedy shows of the past vintage have featured at least some one-off joke regarding blackface. And so streaming services like Netflix and Hulu, etc., have been removing episodes of tv shows that feature characters in blackface it happened to scrubs but i haven't seen all of scrubs so i didn't really know what was going on there i guess it happened to the office there was an episode of 30 rock in which the character jenna played by jane krakowski dresses up for halloween as the black football player lynn swan so she is in full blackface and the one that hit home for me was the episode of community in which Professor Chang, as played by the Asian actor Ken Jeong, shows up to a D&D session as a sort of mystical character in entirely black body paint. So he's not trying to act as a black person, but he does still essentially use the same performative style, specifically in the makeup, as blackface. That's kind of that third category that I'm talking about, I think, is where Chang fits in, where it's not necessarily attempting the same racist propagation but the resemblance still makes people uncomfortable yeah and it's it's adjacent um yes to like the really bad forms of blackface Mm Hmm. but i do think there's a distinction and i do want to draw right right that distinction yeah um so that's what's that's what's going on is that these streaming services are just removing the episodes and leaving it at that saying this is bad we are we're, we're, we're just taking it away and so I want to know first Joe and of course I'll weigh in but what do you what do you make of that decision and that practice I think it may be a little misguided 
um, in certain aspects um, because, you know, while there are versions of blackface that can be very bad and all that stuff, and I want to be known as denouncing blackface, um, it just seems like, um, you know, since we're going through a somewhat of a reckoning about race in our society right now, it seems like there are a lot of companies and institutions that are trying to find ways to signal or, you know, even, you know, wholeheartedly try to do what they can to combat racism. But then the means that they come up with are a little not like not really what needs to be done, just kind of like a more of a ceremonial step, like, you know, kind of comes to mind, uh, you know, the Texas Realtors situ- or Association <laughs> saying that they're no longer going to say master bedrooms because of a possible slave master or something like that. Like, that's that's not fighting racism, but... And then in the world of media, you know, I think we kind of touched on this back in the Disney Plus episode, but, you know, there's a difference between, you know, uh, acknowledging that something was wrong and then just trying to erase it from history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of what we came up back then is that it seems to be better to keep these pieces of media available, but just provide the context because within a piece of media, you can, you know, you can insert context and a disclaimer or, you know, have, I don't know, Morgan Freeman come out and talk on a soundstage for a little bit about what's going on and just tack that out on the beginning. But, um, yeah, it just seems a little, misguided even if it's entirely in good you know done in good faith and trying to better see people doing what they think that they can to try and make the world a little less racist sure and i'm actually gonna go a step farther and say not is it not only is it just a little bit misguided it is extraordinarily misguided and i've got three reasons why i believe this reason number one the approach lacks nuance we're just sort of ripping a band-aid off and the underlying wound is not remotely healed different situations i think fall into different degrees of offensiveness or perhaps differing degrees even of the the representation on display and therefore we require more tailored solutions to the specific episodes and the specific contexts that we're dealing with and it also i think ties into what joe was saying about how if we're really, if our goal is to defeat racism, which it absolutely should be, is having a couple of less sitcom episodes streaming on Netflix going to move the needle? No. So that's reason number one. Reason. Well, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, and I mean, I and I think just with like just blatantly removing things, 
makes it seem like there was never racism to begin with. Oh, yeah. Um, that's my point number three. Yep. <laughs> okay. I jumped yeah. the shark. Yeah, you jumped, you jumped a little bit ahead, but that's okay. We're going to bring it on back. Reason number two is I think we need to have a conversation about the difference between what is right and what is acceptable. Because I think that's something you hear is, well, you know, these things are so recent and we should have known that blackface was wrong in 2013 or in 2012, you know, whenever these very recent episodes of television were. And yes, that's correct, because blackface has never been morally right. But people in media and really in most walks of life don't make decisions based on what is right. They make decisions about what to put out into the world based on what is acceptable. And like it or not, clearly, in the past decade, blackface has been acceptable to mainstream audiences in popular, critically acclaimed TV shows that were put on broadcast television. And we have to grapple with what that means. It's, I think, less a moral judgment and more of a social analysis to ask, what does it mean that my favorite sitcom was okay with doing this even during my own lifetime? Because so much of this conversation has been talking about really, really old movies, really old texts, Birth of a Nation, Gone with the Wind, you know, The Jazz Singer. These are movies from the teens, 20s, 30s. And it was wrong then, just as it's wrong now, and yet it has been acceptable for that entire period of time. We need to address that instead of ignoring it. And that gets into my third and final reason why I think it's dumb to just unilaterally pull these episodes off of streaming, is that to do so creates a distancing effect. If we don't have these examples to say, wow, it was still okay to have a white actress play a black man, our society tolerated that in 2011, we can easily trick ourselves into thinking that Mammy in Gone with the Wind in 1939 was the last time that racism was a problem and that's used and weaponized by people who want to delegitimize claims of racism to say well yeah it was bad then look at look at gone with the wind we were better than that we solved that when in reality it has still been something that we are actively fighting or you know maybe not even fighting maybe fighting's the wrong word for it it's something that we took for granted and didn't even fully grapple with, or at least us as white audiences and, you know, non-black audiences, because, you know, I'll admit it, I I watched, I've seen these shows, I've seen Community 30 Rock, The Office, and not once did I kind of stop and say, oh, damn, you know, and that's, you know, that's a blind spot for me. That's That's an active problem. And... It's something that I think that I, and I'm sure other people like me, should really have to think about instead of just being able to play the next episode. 
the yeah. distancing effect that you get when you remove contemporary examples of problematic media is itself more problematic than the initial issue that you're trying to solve. Yeah. And, you know, like if you were to buy a DVD now of like Tom and Jerry, um, I haven't don't know this for myself, but my understanding is they have uh, some big old disclaimers at the beginning of, hey, there's a lot of stuff in this show that, um, you know, was acceptable in society back then, but we now realize is pretty bad. But we're still going to give it to you anyway, because this is what the show was. But don't that does not reflect the views of our organization today. And that seems to be a better way to handle things than to just say it never happened. Like mm-hmm. Disney continues tried to do with Song of the South. Um, <laughs> it, that mm-hmm. movie did not happen. We never made it. Um, but yeah, imagine, imagine the opportunity to take a popular show like the office and put a disclaimer in front of an offending episode that says, we like to think that these types of depictions are in the past, but unfortunately they persisted through X year we again we do not condone this as an authentic depiction of the black experience but we include it to present the full context of american racism within the media yeah yeah if they came out and put the disclaimer yeah that hey even 10 years ago we thought this was good but now realize that that was bad that would be a powerful statement, um, a, a real acknowledgement of what was going on, instead of waiting until years later and be and then again have the narrative that oh racism's in the past, it's it's not here anymore, but it used to be. There used to be racism, um, mm-hmm. because that's that's a that's a very popular narrative against you know dealing it with anything with race is that oh racism was in the past and you know it just ends up being that it seems to be coming up time and time again when you talk about racism is that it seems like that (laughs) there is this vicious cycle of where there was racism in the past then that racism in the past creates a system that justifies racism in the present, creating present racists and then going on forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Um, like hell, you know, like, um, you know, it's like uh, not educating, you know, black people in the very early days of America meant that, you know, black Americans were uneducated and then people are like, well, be, since they're uneducated and don't know anything, they don't have the capability to know anything. So why should we educate them? And it just just goes through self-perpetuating. Yeah. Self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. 
Yeah. Like, you know, I see it even now, you know, like, uh, you know, civic institutions get gutted that make it harder for black people to build any sort of wealth or, you know, be able to flourish in similar ways to white populations. And since they weren't able to do that, that is proof that they aren't able to do that. So why even try and perpetuate or, you know, prop up new institutions to try and help them prosper because they aren't. And it's just a vicious cycle. So like, especially in media, like Evan said, you know, these and like what we talked about earlier, even, you know, in the the dog segment is that depictions in media matter because people will take them as fact as how as a representation of how things are as a depiction of what is acceptable and obviously obviously people can discern fiction from reality but at this point we live in such a hyper media saturated environment that we can't ignore the role that what we watch plays informing how we perceive reality we have to be able to keep that in mind i mean hell tangentially you know there are some historians who have issues with the play hamilton because while the play is based on real events that has happened you know they take certain liberties with it because any adaption of history into a a uh, piece of media is definitely going to have differences, but then those differences are played out or people see those differences as fact or not aware of the context or anything. So that just becomes the accepted, accepted history of how things are. Did you watch Hamilton this weekend? No, I did. I worked. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, how things are depicted matters, but then once something is depicted, then just getting rid of it wholesale is not good. It's not. But then it's but then if, if your goal if your goal is to be anti-racist, simply pretending that those things don't exist and locking them away is antithetical to your actual goal. Yeah. So now the to move into a slightly different space, unless Evan, do you have anything else you want to add on the, the just to wrap up? Um, yeah. Disclaimers are the way to go earlier. I called on the U S federal government to invoke section 1498 to create generic versions of insulin. I now call on streaming services, Netflix, Hulu, and the upcoming Peacock dumb name, but that's what they're going with to do the hard work of putting disclaimers on controversial episodes as opposed to shoving your fingers in your ears, covering your eyes and pretending they're nothing. All right. You'll see that in our press releases anyway. <laughs> um, so then we move into a different sphere of things with dealing with racist representations of the past. And that has come to a head over the recent weeks with Confederate monuments or just in general monuments of people of American, of, of, you know, American history. And 
there is a big difference between like a monument and an episode of a TV show. So, you know, uh, you know, they maybe they both depict racist things. Maybe someone depicting a Confederate general is racist, but it's different from allowing a TV show to be accessed and celebrating it. Like, you know, it would be hugely, hugely, hugely problematic if it was decided that the office episode where they, you know, they took down and, you know, did blackface. I'm not familiar, but what if that was like the episode that was held up as like the episode of the office? Like, you know, if anyone ever showed anyone an episode of it, like that was the first one. If it was like on, you know, sold on a DV billed as the best of the office and just had that episode on it. Or there was like a screen in Times Square that just continuously played that episode of The Office. That'd be seen as a celebration of it. And (laughs) that celebration of that would want to be stopped because that is not something to celebrate. So we get in because monuments are inherently celebratory. And they, you know, there is the kind of memorial aspects, but there are also people you want to honor and uh, revere. And that's what statues and monuments are. You know, when you put up a statue of Robert E. Lee, it's not to remember who Robert E. Lee is because I know who he is and I've never seen a statue of Robert E. Lee. But... You know, it's come under fire because, you know, there is some population that thinks, you know, it's okay to honor these people because it's part of their heritage. But then it seems to be overwhelmingly now that there are a large group of people who feel very strongly that these monuments have to come down because they are celebrating an individual of the past whose primary claim to fame or infamy is that they fought to enslave people. They fought for the right to enslave people and thought it was so important that they be able to enslave people that they would kill other countrymen in order to try and make that happen. And that is not acceptable in my eyes and in the eyes of the people who are tearing down these monuments. But then also there's another question of, you know, a, I believe a bust of Ulysses S. Grant was taken down by a mob recently. And, you know, there are some calls of, you know, what should we do about George Washington because he was a slaveholder. And you get into a tricky territory where, yes, there are a lot of people in early American history who did a lot of racist things and held a lot of racist views and even held people as property. But what we primarily remember them for is not necessarily because of the slavery or misdeeds that they had, but, you know, we remember them despite that. And, you know, maybe it just it's a weird territory that we're running into as a nation of, 
you know, who do we celebrate? And is it okay to celebrate really any of the founding fathers who were okay with slavery at the time? So, Evan, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) a lot of thoughts. I don't know how many of them are, are coherent and really should make their way in here because they're... There's you're you're absolutely correct that there needs to be a distinction between understanding history and celebrating different aspects of history. I I I love what you said that you don't need to see a statue of Robert E. Lee to know about him and what he did. The idea that somehow getting rid of these monuments is going to make us ignorant to history is risible it's just ridiculous but then you get into something like ulysses s grant and i think at some point you have to understand that a person is a person acting in their time and they're not superman and they can't change things with the snap of their fingers and ulysses s grant seemed to have done Anything that could have reasonably been expected of him. He fought against the Confederacy. He inherited a slave and freed that slave. And then as president, he actively used the power of the government to try to extinguish the KKK. So is Ulysses S. Grant someone who needs to be have his statues torn down? I don't think so at all. Yeah. But that's kind of the problem when it just kind of gets left up to whoever to go out and tear the statues down. There's a line in The Hateful Eight about the the distinction between mob rule and justice. And not that this is rises to the level of mob rule by any extent, but I do think it's worth it to question the process by which we begin to remove some of these confederate relics and then in terms of the founding fathers it's just so tough because every country is going to celebrate the people who created that country our capital is named washington it is literally george washington is literally inextricable from not just the history of america but the celebration of america and yet as we also readily know that history is itself inextricably linked to the concept that other human beings could be property. And so I don't have a good answer. I think that the these types of statues are an obvious thing to take down, to begin attempting to celebrate more worthy (laughs) American icons, but how far does that go? To what extent? I truly don't know. we, We have this podcast to tell you guys what we know, but I have to admit, I really don't know. Yeah. So like, I think we can agree that, Statues that celebrate members of the Confederacy aren't really acceptable. Now, there is a kind of like uh, there is a possible acceptable version of a monument where it's like, hey, this town lost 
50 of our men, uh, you know, or boys even in this fight. And we have a monument here to remember them by. That is totally different than having a monument to a leader of the cause to um, continue to have a society that enslaves people. Um, those are different uh, realms. And then I mean, I guess the- they're different, but are, are they different by enough? Whether you were the leader or you were a, a foot soldier, if you were still fighting to promulgate the notion of slavery is that worth well erecting a monument i I do think so to me i do accept some of the idea that there or at least the possibility that there were people within who fought for the confederacy as soldiers who weren't in it as an ideological fight now, they may have still fought for the Confederacy, but they fought because that just happened to be where they live and they were entangled up. And I, I can th- th- suspend a little disbelief on that. But so um, I, I, I don't think we should make this a whole thing because we're going to have to start talking about the morality of war and the morality of soldiers. And I don't think that we have the time to get into all that. But suffice it to say for now that I do not share that view on the personal political inclinations of the soldiers being super salient. All right. We, so we, we, we don't have to have it out right now on that. I want to make us. So it turns out the only people who are moral are the Quakers. Anyway, Quakers um, are great, man. Quakers are great group of people. Nixon was a Quaker. Was he? I think officially, I don't know if he practiced, but I think that's what that was his listed religion. Yeah. You know, I don't think the guy who like amped up the Vietnam War really uh, (laughs) adheres to Quaker principles. Yeah, he, he wasn't listening too, too closely. Um, um, okay, something that I think is maybe worth talking about, and we can abort it if you are not, if you don't have the information that I hope you have, but isn't it true that many Confederate monuments were not erected in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War to commemorate yes. history, but they were put up during the Civil Rights era? As yes. sort of a backlash. Can you explain yeah. that some more? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> not even just the civil rights, multiple civil rights eras um, that have happened. Um, so this is another thing that has been a feature of American society is that anytime any sort of racial progress gets made, there's a backlash to it. Um, so reconstruction happens and you know civil rights are extended to former slaves and then uh you know there was the reaction to that where oh what's the, what's the official uh, there there's like a word for the backlash to reconstruction redemption i don't know i didn't it, know there was I a think, word for it oh yeah there there's like an a, it's like redemption or something um redeeming what who knows um but uh they there was a backlash in which 
you know, black people essentially went from having the full rights of citizens to becoming second class citizens. And then um, there was some stuff that happened in the 30s. I can't, you know, the the fulfilling of Jim Crow. I can't remember. Um, A lot of monuments got put up during that time. And then also in the wake of the civil rights era in the 1960s, a lot of Confederate monuments. Oh, oh, all the monuments in the 30s were in response to the Great Migration um, to try and scare black people who, you know, were having civil rights. And these statues have not like they were not put up in good faith to celebrate a history that may have been misguided, but it was their history. Nonetheless, they were put up in order to scare black people or to show them in a way who was really running things, not as a, a good mannered celebration, but of a show of force that, Hey, we're here. We're still proud of these people, even after all of this time is gone, and we're in charge. So that's how most of these Confederate monuments got put up, not in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, but 50, 60, 100 years after it, these monuments were getting put up in order to show that, hey... We still believe their cause was just. Yeah. Thank you. That's That was the explanation I was hoping that I would elicit. So, excellent. <laughs> so, these, these monuments don't have a whole lot of standing. Any sort of good standing um, to be had. And... It seems like there are a lot of places now and in this moment who are doing, you know, if mobs aren't coming up and removing them, there are a lot of uh, like city councils and states that are doing what they can to remove these symbols, um, mostly because it seems like, hey, maybe in the past they realized that it was bad, but they didn't quite have the political capital or didn't want to use it to muster up to get rid of them. But now that we're in this moment, it's easy enough to do it. So they're like, yeah, let's get it out of here. Moments. We got the window. Let's get it out of here. Um, mm-hmm. Like the state of Mississippi changing its flag to remove the Confederate. I mean, I, you know, we could go. I know the what we call the Confederate flag isn't the Confederate flag, but I mean, we call it the Confederate flag. So, yeah, to remove the Confederate flag from Mississippi's state flag, who is the last state to have that, um, which seemed to, in part, have been led by college football. Uh, yeah, yeah, the Ole Miss team, and even calling them Ole Miss, I guess, is is uh, less than ideal right now. But, that yeah, the football program was facing extreme backlash for – the name of the school, the name of the team, the name of the flag, you know, the, the design of the flag. Um, when, when the NCAA is involved, you know they're going to try to protect the money. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that change is happening, um, which is very good. But it, it getting rid of symbols is important, and it's something that really need, should be done. 
but it doesn't solve racism. Like it, it is something that is wrong, but it's kind of thing adjacent. Um, you know, this, the statues of Robert E. Lee isn't what is making the material circumstances of African-Americans in a city worse off. Um, while, you know, these statues still shouldn't be there. It, it's not the catch all. you know, it's not like we're going to get rid of these monuments and then we can all high five each other that say, Hey, we undid racism. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, depictions still matter. They matter. And it's, if anything, just a, a small symbol that we understand the pain that some of these associations call. And is this the time to careen into our final component of the main segment, or is there more to be said on the monuments? Um, I think that's good. I think we could careen. So I think one of the last things that's going to matter in terms of, as Joe said, the material conditions of people experiencing racism is a sports team name, but I still think it's important. Right now, the Washington Redskins, and more near and dear to me, my Cleveland Indians are considering name changes, and this is something that I think it's time for. I I, want to speak more to the Cleveland situation because it matters more to me, because, you know, it's, it's a team that I've followed for years that I love and that, you know, means a great deal to me. One of my favorite places in the entire world is progressive field. And there was a really great article by you can get a low rate. What? Yeah, I know. I know. Isn't that, that's a good sidebar conversation to have for another time. How, you know, fucking corporate sponsorship kind of. Oh yeah. The white Sox play at, uh, they play at guaranteed rate field. Yeah, cut rate field. Yeah. Some, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, fine. Jeez. <laughs> but more specifically to the point, uh, there was a, the beat writer for the Indians for, uh, I think, the plane dealer. I don't know where Anthony Castrovince writes, but um, he wrote an article that said what I'm going to say better than I really can. But essentially, even when you really love this team you kind of got to understand that it's time for the name to change getting rid of the chief wahoo logo was a great step but the term indian is as he puts it complicated at best what i've really gained more understanding of in recent years is that a mascot is sort of not necessarily a position of honor when the thing representing you as the mascot is another human and specifically a group of humans who have no ownership stake in the franchise to sort of parade around native americans especially using a loaded term and again could be worse but still loaded term of indian it just doesn't feel right it's not gonna solve racism overnight it's not going to make a big difference but it's the type of thing that maybe will be a symbolic gesture to start people taking these issues more seriously and i am all in on the cleveland spiders 
it's time to re-resurrect that part of Cleveland baseball heritage. And the, the team will still be the team. Will still be managed by Terry Francona. Nothing can take away the 2016 pennant. We'll still have to watch Francisco Lindor leave for the Yankees in free agency and sign a $400 million contract. That that will all still be the same. I, I can still love the team and root for the team as the Cleveland Spiders. And I understand that there is a lot tied up in that and a lot of emotions and a lot of positive associations that a lot of fans have to the Cleveland Indians. But there's a lot of people who have a lot of pain associated with this name, with past depictions of this franchise. And I'm not saying that the Dolans owe it to anyone, but from my perspective as a fan, I want to make the compassionate decision to allow that name change. I think people are upset that, oh, we're being forced to do this by the PC police. It doesn't have to be forced. (laughs) It doesn't have to be forced. We can choose to make the compassionate, humanistic decision and just be some badass spiders. (laughs) That's what I want. Well, hell, even to the point that, you know, we shouldn't be naming things after a group of people who have no say in it. If the Indians changed their name to the Cleveland Native Americans, it would still be weird. It, <laughs> yeah, it would really still be it. weird. That wouldn't weird. that wouldn't just fix everything. It, you know, the it's not so, even so much you know the use of the word Indian because, um, you know, a lot of a lot of Native Americans call themselves Indians. That is true. Um, That's true. And that's part of the complication of it. So just having them, a team be named after that group of people, like not even like, you know, not even a specific tribe, but just the idea of Native Americans in general um, is not a great idea. It's not so much the word. It's, you know, that 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 group of people would come to represent a baseball team and there's all this talk especially about the degree to which the outrage is genuine versus manufactured by essentially white social justice warriors and there's there's a lot of uh contested ground around the redskins name but there's really not for the Cleveland Indians. There are protesters outside of Progressive Field every game. And that community has been crystal clear about how they feel. And again, I don't think it's something that we as a fan base have to do. But I'm asking my fellow fans if this is something we will do as an act of kindness and good faith. Yeah. Like, you know, if you were to like, this just doesn't seem like a fight worth having. And then, you know, somebody could retort back and it's like, well, if we don't fight them on this, you know, are we just going to let them have everything? And it's like, well, 
are you materially losing anything about the baseball team by having it being not associated with its former mascot or team name or pejor- you know plural plurative you know it no does it change the baseball team does it materially change the baseball team to be the Cleveland Spiders versus the Cleveland Indians no yeah but people get so attached to names and this aspect of it honestly has very little to do with race i mean think about the outrage when the Sears Tower became the Willis Tower. Yeah. People were pissed about that just from changing from one corporate name to a different corporate name. Yeah. And I, I, I don't I, have I, the psychological research to understand why that is, but people really get attached to names of things. Uh, the, the moral of this whole episode is uh, small C conservatism rules a lot more than you think. There, that's the takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Things are the way they are because that's nature. I cannot help it. It's in my You see, nature. a baseball team in the Cleveland area arose from the rocks and they were given the God given name of <laughs> the Indians. It happened in nature. Um,. So, yeah, changing the names of things, hiding episodes of television shows and getting rid of, um, you know, Confederate monuments have their differing levels of social justice and how they should go about it. And to differing degrees have different impacts on racism in society in general i think i just said that you know everything's contextual um but yeah getting rid of racism (laughs) is a good thing no matter what through what lens it is it is a positive good to get rid of racism Mm -hmm. and i think that uh that about does it Yes. So we would like to thank you all for listening. Um, Evan, you got anything you want to say? Uh, Just a comment that apparently we've been trending away from end segments. Uh, I don't know if that's because there's less media released due to COVID, which is still happening. Please take that seriously, everyone. Um, Take it seriously. But I'm okay with it. I'm not, you know, I, (laughs) I, I could try to propose an end segment if i wanted to but we're just ending it yeah so thanks again for listening if you have any thoughts comments ideas anything possible send us an email at podcast at adequatelyinformed.com we would like to thank anthony hish for the music but anyway my name's joe hicks and mine's evan kelly and we hope that you've been adequately informed